Welcome to the Asia edition of Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech podcast. I'm Rachel Williamson. And I'm Karis Palmer. Every fortnight, we dissect the successes and failures of financial innovators and bring you the people at the top of their field working to disrupt banking. From traditional banks doing things differently to startups navigating the unforgiving world of financial services, I'm Simon Spencer, and this is Breaking Banks Asia. This podcast is brought to you by SAP Pioneer. Welcome back to Breaking Banks Asia. I'm your host, Rachel Williamson, and this episode we're coming to you from the rainy isles of New Zealand. But today we're turning the spotlight on bank venture funds in sunny Australia. With a global recession on the cards and the already parched private VC market dried up, or at least appearing to, it's putting capital-rich bank venture funds in a powerful position. We ask execs from funds owned by ANZ, National Australia Bank and Commonwealth Bank how they are wielding that power and the impact that bear market is having on their decision making. First in the hot seat is Laura Falconer, Portfolio Director at Commonwealth Bank's X15 Ventures and a biomedical engineer by training. She worked in the business side of science for most of her career in investment roles before crossing over into an in-house gig at X15. Here's our earlier recorded interview with her. Thank you so much for joining us on Breaking Banks Asia. Now, last time we were speaking, you said X15 is different from a traditional bank venture fund. How is it different? Yeah, look, there's a few strategies for how bank venturing and CVC funds are set up. Some are set up with a traditional fund structure. Sometimes that's a solo GP fund. Some it's a multi-GP fund. And others invest off balance sheet. And then they have different investment remits. Sometimes that investment remit is purely strategic. Sometimes it's purely financial. And sometimes it's hybrid on a global basis that breaks out to be about a third, a third, a third. Within Australia, there aren't many other venture arms of corporates that have the build, the buy, and the invest. And amongst the bank venture arms, we're one of the few that that does that, that does all three of those things, um, while having a deeply strategic focus on that investment remit um, without the hybrid model. So you say you're one of the few. Who else in Australia does that? Yeah, so Macquarie Capital does do some building. Um, Most of the others are more focused on investments um, from a hybrid perspective. So while sometimes they're looking at the strategic value to the parent, um, it's still very much anchored in financial return. And while at X15, we want to see a return on our investments uh, so that we can continue to do investments, um, that's not one of the kind of top three things that we're thinking about when we're thinking about a deal. Can you explain those three elements? What is the build? Yeah, build is when it needs to be built within a bank environment. We've learned that lesson. Um, If you build it within a bank environment and it doesn't have to be built that way, all you've done is make it slow and expensive. Um, But there's a lot of things that you just cannot integrate down the track. It has to be designed from the start to work within the complexity of the bank. If I can just interrupt you there, what kind of things have to be built inside a bank from the start? 
digital mortgages. <laughs> you can do those externally, but when you look at the, the market dynamics, uh, it's incredibly challenging to make those work over the long term um, without having that deep connectivity to a parent bank, um, both from the technology stack that's involved, uh, as well as things like access to treasury. So Unloan is an example of a digital mortgage business that we've built. And that was a really interesting case where we were described lovingly, I hope, as um, useful irritants in the system, where us agitating for features and functionality to modernize CBA's banking as a service technology stack um, enabled Unloan to do what it was doing and brought a product that CBA was already working on to market faster to so that we could drive that digitization of the incumbent tech stack. Thankfully, it was really at the start of X15. Um, we were looking for investment opportunities to do, and that felt like a perfect fit for something that needed to be built within a bank venture environment and provided that real strategic value we knew at CBA that digital mortgages were a thing. It was really proven in market. Customers were demanding that type of experience. And we knew that we needed to be part of disrupting ourselves. And that was the, the start of Unloaned. And so far, so well. Invest uh, is the other big arm uh, of, of our investment activity. When we invest, there's two key pathways. One is we're investing alongside strategic partnership. And the other is we're investing in an opportunity that has a pathway to strategic partnership. And the investment structures are a little bit different for each. But really, at the end of the day, what we're saying is that the ecosystem is often better to build a lot of these types of opportunities that typically fall in kind of two categories. One would be it's a core adjacency. It's something that sits well within that banking customer experience and environment, but isn't something that has to be built within a bank system. Or there's um, you know customer journeys that they're on that the banking experience is relevant to, but they're on a completely different journey that isn't with us and we can go meet them there in that journey. And then the second category is the kind of over the horizon stuff where we want to put a finger on it and say, this is a really interesting space that we want to watch, we want to learn from, we want to support because we want to see the, these types of innovations happening, but we're not either prepared or able with where we're at today to do that ourselves yet. And an example of that is Own Home, which is a really interesting rent-to-buy proposition. Can you tell me a little bit more about it then? Yeah, so Own Home, what they're doing is making it easier for people to get into their first home faster, um, where you can uh, identify a property that you want to own one day. Um, own Home will buy that property and then you rent that property from own home and a portion of the rent that you're paying goes towards your deposit. So then you can convert into a mortgage and own that property outright over a three to seven year window. What's happening with bank venture funding across the region? You've said it's pretty stable in Australia. 
So are you seeing the same situation in neighbours like Singapore, Hong Kong, New Zealand and so on? What's happened is a return to normal. Um, We've closed the chapter on the anomaly that was 2021 and we are back to what before 2021 was still record high levels. Um, so yes, it's a decline. It's a reset. It it can be quite frustrating or disappointing for founders um, who may be finding it a little bit more difficult to raise money or more difficult to raise money than the valuations that they were expecting. Um, but at the end of the day, it's still minus 2021 records. Is that the case for bank venture funding? I mean, I know that regular VC funding, there's just story after story of it just disappearing. I'm not seeing it here. And when I'm looking at what's happening in other markets, um, I'm seeing continued signals of activity. So, for example, um, Singapore-based SC Ventures, um, they did five deals in 2020. Um, In 2021, They only did four deals, but that was um, at a significantly uh, higher kind of median deal size. And now in this year, they've done three deals so far this year. So it feels like they're kind of back on track for what's normal in terms of both uh, number of deals and median deal size. Same thing goes for um, CDIB Capital in Hong Kong. They went from no VC stage deals in 2020 two in 2021, five have been disclosed to date in 2022. So while there's certainly anecdotes of uh, companies that struggled to to raise it, when you look at uh, what's happening with some of the key players, perhaps there's more discretion in the deals that are done. Perhaps they're on slightly different terms, but money's still flowing both in, in the bank venture world as well as in the VC land. I did do a quick cut of the numbers um, for deals that have been done in Australia recently. And between seed rounds 2021 to 2022, there's actually not much change, both in terms of round size and valuation. Um, What has changed is Series A. The um, amount of deals being done is the same, but what I found was that the valuation came off by about a third. Um, And so what's going to happen there, I think, is that you'll have more companies that struggle to raise at that Series A. The bar is going to be raised for what a Series A venture needs to look like in order to successfully raise. And even when they do hit that threshold, it's not going to be those top evaluations that they were getting even six, 12 months ago. Also, potentially, there's more space for a bank venture fund to invest when you don't have that huge surge of um, private venture money actually washing through the system as well. Correct. I think one of the real advantages of the reset that we've had is that both other VC funds as well as founders have recognized the value of having diversity on their cap table, not just VC funds, having other types of funds that maybe behave differently in different types of cycles, other investors that can offer value outside of investment. For example, um, bank VC funds um, can offer that um, pathway to strategic partnership and and other types of growth unlock. Um, So having them actually on the cap table actually increases the robustness of that company over the long term. 
So let's come back to X15 because you are backed by Combank, the biggest player in Australia. How are you deploying funds to actually shape that fintech landscape? We make investments that sometimes have a very long-term play, own home, rent to buy, long-term view of where that market and opportunity is going. And we look at some investments as uh, addressing a very real short-term opportunity or need. Um, So the way that we're looking at investments and how we're deploying our capital to shape the the market is fundamentally different. Um, Traditional VCs need to see fund returning level of upside for every single investment that they make. At X15, we want to see opportunities that have the ability to be a standalone venture. So there is enough materiality there to to move the needle. But we also want to see that it can add that strategic value. And where there's an opportunity that has exceptional strategic value, we're a lot more willing to tolerate um, less attractive unit economics or less big overall market size opportunity um, than a typical VC would. We're also very happy to look at opportunities that really only ever have the potential to create significant market share within Australia because at CBA, we are an Australian bank, and we want to see that our investments are adding value here to our customers. Let's talk about the lay of the land today for venture funding, given the ructions that have been happening this year. The VC landscape in Australia has changed so dramatically in the 10 years that I've been here, particularly over the last couple of years, we had a pretty big influx of first-time funds get off the ground, like Sprint, Tidal, Galileo. While funds like this have less funds under management, they also have fewer competing priorities to deploy capital into their existing companies during challenging times. So when you come into a cycle like this, my hypothesis is that this growth in the new VC funds in Australia could perhaps help ease some of the tendency to to retreat into existing portfolio support. Another consequence of that is there's a lot of dry powder in the ecosystem. This is a global phenomenon and it has to have somewhere to go. LPs, investors have already invested in these funds and they expect it to be deployed. They can't sit on that capital forever. The typical fund life cycle is about three years. Um, Some funds might decide to go for a slow deployment, might kind of stretch that fund deployment by a year or so. But at the end of the day, they still have to deploy the funds. And so I do expect checks to keep flowing. And at the end of the day, more capital is still coming into the ecosystem and not just a little bit. Square Peg just closed their new $860 million fund. Other well-established funds like Main Sequence, Blackbird, Antler, they're all out there actively raising in market. So I have every bit of confidence that we're going to continue to not only have deployment of the existing dry capital, but we're going to keep adding to that dry powder um, keg that's building. Um, And if history repeats itself, question mark. Uh, Early stage deals are still happening. Um, When you look at the the numbers, the pre-seed and seed stage deals are still chugging along pretty healthily. Um, And 
Through the last major recession, we saw that investors who deployed the bulk of their capital through that bottom investing in that stage outperformed. So we've got a real opportunity for some of these funds that do have this dry capital to potentially, if history repeats itself, put up the same type of outperformance, which down the track when they're raising fund two, fund three, they will then be able to to raise those funds easier. Um, Are you looking at that seed stage to get in and right at the bottom of all these companies? Oh, absolutely. We we will look at pre-seed. What we want to see at that really earliest stage is around the, the founders, the insight, the opportunity, and enough comfort that there is something there that we can put on that pathway to strategic partnership. Um, seed where they've got some signals of product market fit, Uh, those are the ones that are kind of in between the strategic partnership readiness level. And Series A is usually when we're ready to invest at strategic partnership. Across the board, uh, we're looking at investments uh, through the cycle, absolutely. Has X15 invested outside Australia? And if so, why? If not, why not? So X15 hasn't made any investments outside of Australia yet. Um, We're certainly open to it. Really, the the lack of X15 investment offshore to date has a lot more to do with the fact that we started from a build thesis and we've recently kind of stepped that out more and more to also acquire and to also invest. And the appetite is there. If we develop a thesis in a certain area and we know that the industry is strong in other jurisdictions, we would absolutely go hunting. Eurasian banks, DBS, Standard Chartered, et cetera, you know, they have dozens of fintechs in venture portfolios and they are proving to be very good at partnering with small fintechs. So what do you think that Australian bank venture funds can learn from these other banks in the region? There is always an opportunity to learn from what others are doing. To be honest, I don't have a deep background in exactly how uh, Standard Chartered and some of the others are approaching it. I would seriously love a peek behind the curtains. One of the things that jumped out at me around Standard Chartered, particularly as an example, is the way that they came out so boldly and clearly with their very ambitious targets. So they've said that 50% of their income, they want to derive from digital initiatives, innovation, and transforming its core. And they're going to spend a billion dollars a year to do it, USD. That's a really powerful statement and a really clear long-term commitment When you look at how they're measuring success across what they're doing, it feels like a lot of the same things that at X15 we're looking at measuring, growth of target customer bases, the ability to scale up their ventures, strong tech foundations, strong customer satisfaction. Those are all things that we're measuring and care deeply about within our portfolio. And then they're also kind of taking this platforms, practices, and partners approach Sounds pretty familiar to how we're approaching what we're doing. We've got XStack, which is a technology platform. Our policy set enables compliance um, that is better than bank agility 
still not startup level of agility. Uh, and our investment strategy, looking to identify and pull companies into strategic partnership pathways. At the end of the day, it's difficult, right? Getting these strategic partnerships off the ground requires relationships. And it's so hard to scale that human connection element of getting the internal champions committed to driving something along what can be a bumpy journey sometimes. It can be a journey that changes directions. And for ventures that want to engage with the parent and you know, engage in a way where they know that they're not just one of many, that they're that they're one that is really deeply supported on that journey. So I love the opportunity that larger portfolios can deliver, but also um, there's trade-offs. And while we've got a portfolio with headroom that we'd like to continue to grow, growing it too big does come at a cost. Thank you so much for joining me today, Laura. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. Now a few words about our sponsor, SAP Pioneer. For many of you from banks or insurers listening to this podcast, it's easy to get excited about the innovation we're talking about, but it can be daunting taking the digital leap. How can you build or upgrade to the latest technology to deliver all that competitive edge without risking, literally in some cases, breaking the bank? Well, launched as the financial services spin-off from SAP, Finear offers the best of both worlds, combining the agility of a startup with the experience of a best-in-class software company. That means future-fit technology that gets you to market fast combined with reliability and scalability. So if you're looking for a new fintech who's a safe pair of hands, check out sapfioneer.com. Ron Spector is the Managing Director of 1835i, ANZ's Venture Fund, and ANZ pinched him from his gig as CEO of Sosini Innovation in San Francisco in 2017. He has a long track record of finding and building tech and fintech startups, running Conferserve, MediaZone, among others, and as a founding partner of Macquarie Technology Ventures. Welcome to the show, Ron. Thank you. Great to be here. So last year, ANZ spun out its innovation fund into a standalone company called 1835i. So you can move faster, focus more on partnerships, uh, rather than bringing everything in-house. Now, I find this interesting because Combank did the same thing with X15, but they're still a subsidiary and you are a separate entity entirely. How has that shift changed the way that you do business? For example, what impact has it had with the speed that you've been able to deploy capital? Well, I don't think it's changed the speed in which we've deployed capital. It just makes the operational day-to-day management of my business much simpler. I built something up inside of ANZ called ANZ-I, which was both an investment function. So we had a corporate venture uh, business unit, and then we also had an incubation lab for starting and, and launching new businesses, which is similar to X15. Um, we ran those as integrated functions, and it worked reasonably well, but the time, energy, cost, and effort it takes to do those things inside of a highly regulated ADI proved challenging. So the thesis was by being a hybrid model, by something closer to what AXA had or some of the other uh, corporates have done, by moving next door. We didn't leave mom and dad, we just moved next door, kind of moved out to the beach and got our own place. 
we could operate better, cheaper, and faster and better serve the bank by being outside. So we're still governed in the sense that we still report to the bank and the uh, investment committee is made up of senior executives of ANZ, just like it was before. And our thesis and our strategic focus is still 100% aligned with the bank. But now we can hire, we can fire, we can use tools, we can create a culture that is much more what you see outside of a banking environment. And by doing that, we can get the best and brightest and better serve the bank. How does that work in practice? And how and is it working as envisaged when the spin-out happened last year? So we really have three integrated business units. We have an investment team, which is a classic corporate venture thesis-based investment team. And we have close to a billion under management, and we've deployed almost a half a billion in capital. We also have an incubation lab with a small fund attached to that. So we're still looking in rare cases where there's a gap in the market and there's not someone we can partner with, we can go ahead and build that capability and launch it either back into the bank, which we've done a few times, or out into the world. So we can actually make these as as spinoff businesses, which we've also done three or four times. Um, So that capability still exists. And at the center, the entire rationale behind what we're doing is to create partnership optionality for the bank. How can the bank better work with emerging growth fintechs that can bring better products, services, capabilities, either to the bank or to the bank's customers and partners through the bank? And so our thesis remains entirely the same. Our operating methodology is largely the same, though now, again, we can just do it faster. If if we build something in the lab, it's much easier now to test it. We don't have to go through all of the infrastructure at the bank. We can go, okay, we've got three people, we've ginned something up. We want to put a test page up and get some customers to bang on it. We can do that. Uh, inside of ANZ, you couldn't because it's ANZ Bank. You know, the, the regulatory environment around them is much more stringent. So I think while we're doing the same work. We're just, uh, the focus hasn't changed at all. We're just able to do it much faster. Like how much faster? Let's quantify this. In days, weeks compared to months or perhaps even years? The first company that we spun out of the bank when I first joined took a year and a half. The second one took a year. The third one still took nine months. Now we can actually do that in a matter of 90 days. You know, we can gin up a concept, do a quick proof of concept, get some customers using the solution very quickly in a in a beta environment. So it is dramatically faster for us to build and launch. On the investment side, it's just simply the construct now that once we get investment committee approval, we're making capital calls like a traditional venture fund does. So our pace there um, is a little more rapid because there's an allocated pool of capital and we kind of don't have to go through the a more lengthy process. But largely, you can run an investment vehicle with inside uh, a big bank without too much drama. Um, so there hasn't been a dramatic speed improvement on that side, nor did we really require one because it was relatively efficient. It's just now we have an allocated pool of capital across funds so we can take a portfolio approach. When you're investing balance sheet, the balance sheet of these organizations is extraordinarily large and it gives you an advantage. But if you're trying to be a disciplined investor and really look at it as a portfolio spread, um, it's challenging. Because what is the portfolio? How, how do you understand what you're and calculate both financial and non-financial returns? Now that we have it more in a traditional fund structure, we're able to say, I have X amount of capital. I want to use that across 12 to 15 companies. So therefore, that gives me a natural limit um, per deal. And I can also set stage. Um, so it gives us a little more discipline in how we're deploying the capital. You at ANZ have been investing since 2018. 
you picked Air Wallex, which is arguably one of Australia's better exports, I should say, and Lendi. I'm keen to know which company you would say has been the most successful. I love all my children equally. Um, I, I think the answer is pretty obvious. Those two companies, if you look at them, they're just the most mature. So they're, they're further along on their maturity journey. And I think both of them are on the path to great success. Neither one has made it yet, but Lendy is, you know, they're profitable. The, the merger has gone through quite successfully. The company continues to grow. And we're very bullish about the future for that business. And Airwallex has continued to grow at triple digits uh, despite the current market conditions and uh, is on a path to profitability. And, and we're really, really um, confident in the management team. We think they're doing an extraordinary job. Jack is a great entrepreneur. He's built a great team. Uh, and they're global. You know, they're taking the world on and they're really trying to build the infrastructure of the future. Um, and I think that we're very, very excited about that. I'm going to skip forward and ask you about Bud as well. Um, that's an interesting one. I think it's your only open banking specific investment. And as a UK company, what's the rationale behind, behind that particular investment? Well, there were there was two there was two reasons behind the investment in Bun. One, most of the learnings around open data. Uh, have come from the UK. So they're they're more advanced. You can argue whether it's been effective or not. And I would argue that that uh, at this point, from a customer standpoint, an end consumer, you and I, probably not. But they're in the UK or here in Australia? All of the above. But the UK has led with the legislation and the regulation and the innovation has followed. So we looked at comparable companies here and Bud was from a technology standpoint, we thought more advanced. And the marketplace there was more advanced in terms of the regulatory environment. So the investment had two theses behind it. One was uh, to take a bet and be able to learn from the inside about how this regulatory environment was going to impact companies in the UK and then be able to apply those learnings here. And two, they have developed and continue to develop a capability that the bank could consume in a reasonable time frame. So it's already deployed in New Zealand. So ANZ New Zealand is using Bud to do a number of things around customer engagement. And we're looking at deploying, they've now got their license here to be a data recipient. And the bank will likely be utilizing Bud for various purposes here in Australia as well. So there was those two, th th those were the two rationale. One was to understand and learn and apply. And the other was actually to try to plug in the capabilities. Thematically, the way we invest is we have business sector focus, small business, home ownership, trade and capital flow. But we also have a bucket we call capabilities, which is everything from open data to automation to cyber, all the underlying technology capabilities that enable financial services companies to better serve themselves and their customers. So that's an area that we're looking globally because those companies aren't specific to Asia or the UK or the US. They're really global technology enablement companies. And we're happy to be the first customer here, or we're happy to be able to be a channel partner here. You've only dipped your toes into those into two international ventures. So you've got Ada in New Zealand and Bud. Why only those ones? And what would make offshore investments more interesting or more doable for you? Well, first of all, we screened over 500 global deals over the last few years. So we're 
we're active. We're sourcing out of Silicon Valley through my network, London, Singapore. We're looking in Israel. But the answer to your question is, with the exception of ANZ's institutional business, the big four banks here are all domestic banks. NAB, Commonwealth, and Westpac are not in New York and London and Jakarta and Mumbai. They're not. They're, they're domestic banks. Therefore, your investment thesis to support your mothership is largely driven by what are the roadmap capabilities you need to help them with today and what new products and services that you can bring in from other parts of the world that could be deployed here in Australia. Now, we have a little bit of a, an advantage in, in the, the international because ANZ's institutional business is, in fact, quite strong. And it plays very significantly, especially in Asia. So we're absolutely out there looking and sourcing and screening product services capabilities that can be deployed through the institutional bank. Either they can consume or they can pass through to their customers. And we're looking in all sorts of, we were just up in Singapore for FinTech, FinTech Fest, and we probably did 30 meetings while we were up there looking at different opportunities. The, the rationale has to be not where the company's located. We don't care. Uh, it has to be that their product or service or capabilities either can be deployed or will be deployed in this part of the world, or at least on the institutional side of our business. So it's more about the value proposition to ANZ and its customers than it is a geographic focus. Um, now having said that, we're absolutely excited about the opportunities, especially in the US and the UK, where there are product services and capabilities that we think can be plugged in into this part of the world. So basically, I guess all of those 500 opportunities just wouldn't work in Australia. And I imagine a lot of the ones from companies in Asia wouldn't work in Australia either because the markets there are so fundamentally different. No, it's exactly right. I, it's very selective. I mean, the the disadvantage you have as a corporate investor is the world you're inhabiting is more narrow. So I can't just see a great company. You know, I can't have my network, one of my colleagues call me up from San Francisco and go, hey, Ron. Awesome deal. Third time they're doing it again. This thing's this thing's going to be worth a billion dollars in a week. Why don't you drop some capital in? No, can't do it. Love to do it. Might do it individually, but we don't do it as an investor. We need that connection between the commercial and strategic value to the parent company and the potential portfolio company. So that means it's a narrower, but it also means we can go deeper. It means in the areas that we care about, we really can go deep. And we can be much more selective because I'm not just looking for an IRR or cash and cash out. I'm looking for a strategic profile where that company may not be a may not be a 10, 10x win on exit, but it's a reasonable return on the investment, but it's a strategic value or commercial value to the bank. So it's just a different lens that you wear as an investor. But your point is well taken. We screen a lot of things where the technology or the product or service are really compelling, but they're not coming here or it simply wouldn't work in this market. But we also get to see things where we think there's an overlap and you could take that business model or product service and plug it into this market and have success. So that's what we're really looking for. Is it an underlying capability, a bud, where we can plug in the technology and it's going to help ANZ and its customers? Or is there a business model that's worked in the UK or worked in the US or worked in Asia uh, that we think would be applicable to this market and then we can be an anchor to help that company come in? That's a, a lovely segue into my next question about, you wrote earlier this year that 1835i's mission is to create and invest in, in businesses that drive value for ANZ. And I imagine this means you have a fairly narrow focus on investing to benefit the parent. Does that mean that you have any scope to invest in a way that would 
perhaps drive the Australian fintech sector forward faster while not directly benefiting ANZ right now? I have to be careful how I say this, but my job is not to benefit the Australian fintech sector. My job is to benefit ANZ Bank and my portfolio companies. That's first. Now, by doing my job well, we in fact support a lot of the local fintech ecosystem. Now, what we do is we will co-invest with competitors. And you, you've you've studied the portfolio pretty well. Congratulations. Um, we've co-invested. I, you know, I just came out of a Valiant board meeting yesterday, and you know, Simon Kant's on that board with Reinventure. And we're in that deal. We are in with CBA, NAB, and Reinventure in SLIP. Uh, and this is a we're about to close a deal where NAB's the lead investor. So we're comfortable co-investing with with competitive organizations, where by doing so, we're raising the capability in the market. We're increasing the maturity of technology and businesses that can support the broader financial services industry and will benefit customers. So we're happy to do that. Um, I think that's probably a more you know relevant use case for our capital where we see a valuable business. There's certainly a good return in terms of the partnership opportunities with the bank and the financial return, but we're raising all the boats and creating a capability that that doesn't exist in the market. And we follow on, which a lot of corporate venture <laughs> doesn't do. When things get tough, they kind of run. We have a long-term view with these companies. So. You're on the record saying no to buy now, pay later, and no to neobanks as well. Why? On the record, absolutely. <laughs> these are these are two of the biggest trends, financial fintech trends in Australia over the last decade or so. Can you just tell us a little bit about why you don't like either of those as an investment thesis for you guys? Uh, so I arrived in 2018 when these trends were just kind of grabbing hold. I was very conversant and very immersed in the neo trend in the US and in UK and Europe where a lot of the early companies were launching as digital-only banks. Um, when I arrived to Australia, I was struck by two things. One, it's one of the most overbanked countries on the planet. Uh, the second concern for the NEOs was uh, taking deposits and building a balance sheet and being able to weather challenging times is a non-trivial task. It takes decades to build these companies up to where they're at a mature level that they can manage their ways through cycles. And the trend with NEOs tends to be younger people putting smaller amounts of money. But when you balance that against the need for a balance sheet and the highly regulated environment here in Australia and the high customer acquisition cost, the economics don't add up. It was going to take massive amounts of capital to get to any level of scale. And if you fail to get scale and you fail to build your balance sheet, the first downturn, you're out of business. So we looked at those conditions. And as an investor, they all came in and said, hey, do you want to invest? Do you want to loan this capital? We couldn't get through that analysis. We just couldn't come to the conclusion they were going to win. And in fact, unfortunately, um, other than judo, and I would argue judo is not really in the end, judo's going back to old school small business banking, which I love. Um, I, I think you've seen what's happened. Um, so I'm sorry to say I was right, but it's not because I was brilliant. It was just we did the we did the analysis and couldn't see the, a happy ending. And buy now, pay later. So, and I'll be honest, they all came through. Every single one of them came through and met with us and me, and wanted us to invest. I was intrigued because I do trend. I, I I'm not of the right generation. I'm an old man, but I have lived through a number of inflection points where new business models emerged to support new patterns of how human beings behave. 
you know, lots of people now don't own houses and cars in America and they like subscription or demand, you know, I need a service, I'll go rent it for a little while and then I'll give it back. So we looked at the buy now and I, I did conclude that there was a trend there and that there was probably a shift. But what we couldn't get our heads around, and this was, again, looking at an ANZ perspective, is the banks can do this themselves. And in fact, ANZ has now launched, you know, your money, our money, or do you want to do installments? So credit, debit, installments. It's just, it's a capability that can be integrated into an everyday banking service, but that banks would do it much more responsibly given their 200 years of of how they operate from a regulatory standpoint and a compliance standpoint. We were concerned about unregulated lending getting consumers in trouble because, yeah, it's easy. I can buy it. And the bank's mission statement is financial well-being not and building communities, not payday lending or any of these other uh, more nefarious things. Now, buy now, pay later scaled. And so we looked on the sidelines and we touched base probably every six to nine months with how are we feeling about not having a bet in the race. And each time we came to the same conclusion, this is a trend. Um, it is an inflection point. These business models will ultimately become mature, but the companies that are launching them as independent offerings are likely to suffer down the track versus integrating the capability into core banking services. And again, um, you could argue that we missed a lot of value by not owning a piece of afterpay uh, or zip or the others, but you could also argue if we were still in those businesses, it wouldn't have been a, a happy ending. And we stuck true to ANZ's values of we don't think this is in the best interest of the customer and the consumer, the way it's being done. And so it was a fairly, I don't want to say easy decision, but it was a decision we made and very comfortable with it. I, I'm fine like leaving money. You know, I didn't put money in and I didn't, didn't get a big return off of that. But I also didn't expose the bank to reputational risk. We didn't actually put ourselves in a position where we weren't living up to the mission statement supporting the customer outcomes. So pretty comfortable with it. It's something you said just then, buy now, pay later, you know, you can integrate it into your core proposition. What in fintech could you not and should you not integrate into your core value proposition if you are going to go in that direction of offering the ultimate in customer service? In my view, all of them should be plugged in and delivered, but they all won't be. Because you have you have the regulated pools of returns for banks, which I think they can protect better. Then you have a whole string of products and services that are much less regulated that that are much easier to be disrupted in. And so then your choice around those is do you disrupt yourself and partner with those companies and take a clip? Do you directly try to compete? Or do you just give up the, the space at all? And the ability of these large organizations to compete is really limited because they're big ships. It's not easy to go, oh, somebody just did something in FX and IMT that's just simplified payments, and they've driven a bunch of cost out, and they've they've really made it hard to make money in that business, but they're really growing quickly because they're satisfying customers. And you know, that's that's wise, that's revolute, it's our friends at Airwallix. How do you compete with that? Because you already have your own roadmap and your own infrastructure and your own investments, or do you try to partner with them? and provide that capability through to your customers, either directly or indirectly? And, or do you just stand by the side of the road and, and let that business you know, slowly or rapidly deteriorate in terms of your returns? I think that's the analysis for, for large financial services companies. And you know, we see our mission as to try to create the options for either competing or for partnering and in fact, delivering capabilities through to customers that you may not develop yourself. 
And last question for you. This is a personal one. Which sector in fintech, given all of the deals that you have looked at for 1835i, excites you personally? Well, uh, personally, this is not this is not speaking as a 1835i investor. Speaking as a human being on planet Earth and a technology and innovation guy for 35 years, um, what's going on in India and in Southeast Asia with giving human beings an identity, a, a legal identity that they did not have, and creating a digital identity for them and giving them a bank account and giving them access to a range of things that they never, ever could have before. And this is happening in Africa as well. That's just, that's the power of this stuff. Forget developed nations. You know, the U.S. is a cluster of 50 state regulators, and, you know, it's still hard to make an Apple Pay payment. But if you look in India, they literally overnight gave 300 million people an identity, opened a bank account, gave them money, and then allowed them to pay people and get paid and access services that they could never access before. That's that's just humanity game-changing. And that's the stuff that's super exciting. So being at the, the Singapore FinTech Fest, obviously there's a focus on that part of the world. And everybody's doing payments. Everybody's doing KYC. RegTech is a big, big thematic. Of course, all things blockchain and crypto. Take all that aside, the stuff that was fascinating and game-changing was literally taking people who are sitting on the fringe outside of the daily mainstream of, of the planet and bringing them into the game and giving them an identity, giving them a digital bank account and allowing them now for the first time to start fully participating in their societies. That's just mind-boggling and wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us, Ron. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Our final guest is Amanda Angelini, the Managing Director of National Australia Bank's NAB Ventures. For the almost three decades before she came home, she was a lawyer, investment banker, sports media company executive and advisor, entrepreneur and investor in the Big Apple. She spoke with Breaking Bank's Asia producer, Karis Palmer, about where NAB Ventures fits into the Australian ecosystem. What brought you back to Australia and what have you brought back with you in terms of ideas and experience? Thanks very much for having me today, guys. Really appreciate it. Um, terrific opportunity. Um, I'd say family for the most part. The uh, the sunshine doesn't hurt. Uh, there are several things that I miss about New York City, um, but I definitely don't miss the New York winters, um, at least not the whole winter. Uh, and I, I think the other thing is, you know, Australia is seen um, in various parts of the world as, as being an innovation hub. I've come back to financial services, you know, both in New York and, and now in Australia to, to hopefully and help be a catalyst uh, for that change. I've worked in in both you know financial institutions, large corporates, and and then you know startups themselves, and I think that allows me to bring a unique perspective to you know what we do here at NAB Ventures, which is strategic investing, and truly you know how to drive value in that partnership. So we really do look to collaborate with our portfolio companies. Always a healthy dose of curiosity, and and then in terms of experience. Obviously, you know, having a global network that spans multiple industries um, can be of benefit to both our customers and to NAB and, and to our portfolio companies, um, especially those looking to, to go in from Australia into, into other markets, but even, even the ones that we invest in that are looking to come into Australia. I spent many years in innovation um, and in tech as a founder 
and and I've also worked um, in large companies uh, as an operator. So you know, bringing some of those insights, I think, has been been helpful. And you know, I just love building companies and products, whether they're my own or someone else's. So you know, really hoping that some of that can be um, be helpful to the companies that we invest in. Excellent. Thanks, Amanda. So NAB Ventures has been really active this year. Why do you think that is? And perhaps you could talk about a couple of examples of, of some of the things you've been engaged with this year. So we're primarily a strategic investor. Um, our goal is to find companies and teams that can assist our colleagues, right, in terms of providing best-in-class and innovative products um, that, you know, our customers need to live better, run and grow their businesses, etc. And th- And that in turn you know, allows us to serve our customers efficiently. And so, you know, we're always striving to, you know, find products and services that not only meet customers' needs but help them grow and, and thrive, uh, especially in a world that evolves as quickly as it, as it does today. So there's a, a lot of technology that's being built by amazing founders in financial services and, and adjacencies at the moment. And, you know, we're helping NAB partner with those companies and, and investing in those companies, you know, which provides a great alignment of, of all of our interests um, in addition to providing that capital for growth. Um, you know, and if we're a customer of that company, you know, we're contributing, you know, to their growth as well, um, such with a company um, that we invested in earlier the year called Amber Data. We get business sponsorship for those companies very early. You know, it's, I think it's important to have an internal champion in the business for those. And, I think the other part is we've got a great network of founders and other CVCs and VCs, both locally and globally. And I think that allows us to either, you know, help build out a, a great uh, cap table of investors um, for companies or, or be brought in as, as one of those. But, you know, we are looking for companies that can help um, help our businesses um, you know, we made a, a, an investment in a company called Travata earlier the year, which is Treasury Management Services, a recent investment in a company called Banked. Um, we've got a company uh, called SafeStack that's out in New Zealand. Thank you. So NAB Ventures also appears to have a more international approach than that of the others, um, the other venture funds. It even gets a mention on a Middle East founded startups database that other Aussie banks do not. Do you think NAB Ventures is more outward looking? I'm not sure that we're more outward looking than others, but but we are outward looking. So, you know, as I said, we're global investors. We've got a global mandate. Um, we're connected with the ecosystem, you know, around the globe. So we have that ability to source globally. And, you know, our vision is to find the best solutions, the best teams, you know, the best opportunities, you know, not only for NAB Ventures, frankly, but more importantly for NAB and, and most importantly, you know, for for our customers. And I think we can also learn from other parts of the world uh, when we invest um, in companies from different places and we've got a very diverse set of founders. So they're bringing learnings and best practices um, to us. And, you know, then we're also hopefully helping contribute to those best practices when they work with, you know, National Australia Bank and various business groups and and our customers and, and NAB Ventures uh, themselves. We've made some great investments overseas, but you know we do have a company in Australia we've invested in called DataMesh. Um, we've invested in a, a local company, um, Jora. We made a couple of an earlier investments this year in companies um, Friday and Greener. Um, Friday's uh, about making 
small businesses really have much more time to spend on running their businesses um, than, you know, the the admin part of, of that. So we are interested in meeting with companies, um, frankly, all over the world. Yeah, it's interesting, um, yeah, because you can take learnings from so many different regions and they're all very different in terms of their fintech operations. So interested in that the, the fund's mostly focused on sort of UK, EU, North American investments outside of Australia. Do you see Asia as being just too fundamentally different or do you take the lessons from there and, you know, do what you can with them and, and leave that market to others? Look, we've met with some startups um, in, the, in the Asia region. Um, you know, I've spent 20 years in, in the United States, so I've got some deep connections there and in, in Europe. I think also in some aspects of banking, there's regulatory similarities between sort of the US or UK and 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 European Union and 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 Australia, and you know there's some similarities sort of in that core banking framework, um, which has led to customer behaviour. Um, although that you know it's not identical, but you know in some of those other regions is, is close enough so that the technology can be both adapted. And, and adopted, um, you know, by that end consumer. So, look, we're open to meeting with companies in Asia. I think some products will be more applicable and some products will be less applicable to the Australian market. And, you know, it, it, we, we try and address things and look at things on a, on a case-by-case basis. So, given that the bank has a good amount of capital to invest and we're in a quite a sort of, I wouldn't say capital <laughs> scarce, but, you know, capital threatened perhaps environment right now and a lot of the capital is somewhat recession-proof. That With that power, do you invest to shape an industry because obviously you're able to do that or is the fund more oriented towards investing to serve NAB? I'm, I'm under the belief that, right, investing to support and enhance NAB's businesses and obviously, you know, the products and services that we are providing to our customers is ultimately shaping an industry. Um, We're the largest business bank in Australia and and we hope that our partnerships with our portfolio companies, you know, will lead to innovation. We do hope that these investments and the products that that come off of these partnerships, you know, will also help shape an industry. Lastly, what are you most excited about for next year in terms of the shifts we're seeing more broadly in this sector? We will we will continue to look um, in sort of the embedded finance space. Um, I think there's also still some, you know, some core banking technology areas that we you know love to see and and spend some time in. Um, payments generally is is one of those areas that's still evolving and evolving rapidly. I think globally, and um, there's always interesting. Um, new developments and and then hence new companies um, for us to look at in this space. And, you know, we are spending more time in the climate space. Um, Obviously, that's uh, become um, and is an important um, initiative for for many people. And so, you know, spending a little bit more time there and and learning as much as we can. I think it's a a great time to to be um, part of fintech in general um, and and also just, you know, really exciting to be... uh, a corporate venture capital uh, investor at the moment and being able to, you know, not, you know, both invest in companies, but but also hopefully, you know, bring some sort of partnership to bear and, and work with them and, and really kind of help them grow. Thank you to Amanda and all of our guests today. We would also like to thank our sponsor, SAP Pioneer. Rock solid technology, bold creativity. 
I'm Rachel Williamson, and you've been listening to Breaking Banks Asia. If you enjoyed today's episode of Breaking Banks Asia, don't forget to share it on Twitter, leave us a five-star review on iTunes, or wherever you listen to our show. This helps us build our audience and support our sponsors so we can continue to bring you a great show every fortnight.